Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture program curator here at the RA. And it's my pleasure to welcome you today to this third event in the Forgotten Master series, uh, which is a collaboration between the Royal Academy of Arts and Okomomo UK. It's a real delight to welcome our two speakers tonight, uh, Simon Green and Neil Gillespie, who will be talking about the work of Scottish architect Peter Wormsley, one of the Forgotten Masters uh, of the modern movement. Yeah, before, before we begin, I would like to thank to the RA architecture program supported, which are uh, the Drew Hines Endowment for Architecture, and Turkey Ceramics. Now it's my real pleasure to hand over to Judy Loke, uh, who has given like an incredible support in organizing this event. She is professor in early modern and modern European cultural history at Cardiff University and also chair of Docomomo UK. Judy will be chairing this discussion, uh, which will start with two presentations from our two speakers, followed by an open discussion uh, uh, with the public, and a closing remark by Tony Fretton, who is the trustee of Docomomo. And now please give a warm welcome to Judy. Well, it's a great pleasure to be able to um, introduce two people who've both know about Wormsley, but from different angles. Firstly, we're going to be hearing from, and the idea in this series right the way through is to have a historian and a creative, a current creative designer, usually architect. So to get these two angles on the same figure. So first of all, Simon Green is an architectural historian working in the survey and recording section of historic, of historic environment Scotland, um, previously the Royal Commission on uh, Ancient and Historic Monuments, Scotland. And this involves examining, investigating and recording buildings throughout Scotland and all periods. So I usually think of him as sort of rather pre-modern, dare I say. And he has uh, researched and lectured on a number of Scottish architects, including Sir Robert Lorimer and um, Morrison Steedman and William Loper. So most of these are people who are rather of an earlier period, but also Peter Womersley. And his broader research topics include the architecture of, the, of Scottish churches, um, the baronial, the arts and crafts movement in Scotland, and he recently published a book on Dumfries House, an architectural study. He is a trustee of the Scottish um, Redundant Churches Trust and is also the president of the Architectural Heritage Society of Scotland. Now, by now, you're probably thinking, Womersley is just on the side. Is he really interested in modernism? But I can tell you, he was a very proud owner and inhabitant of a Basil Spence flat. Uh, he forgot to put that on his bio. And I said, I don't know, I seem to recall that you only left that because you wanted a garden. He liked it. And he's just told me that it was since told to Neil Baxter. So, you know, it's, it has a good pedigree there, too. Um, he will be followed by Neil Gillespie from Ryken Hall, so practicing architects who probably know more about. Um, he's design director of Ryken Hall. He's also visiting professor um, at both the Scott Sutherland School of Architecture in Aberdeen and at Sheffield School of Architecture. Um, he trained at Edinburgh College of Art um, and he uh, has said that his favorite period in architecture is the 1950s, which may explain why he's quite, become quite keen on Wormersley. Um, and at that point, I think I'll just hand over to Simon. Thank you very much indeed. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm going to talk about Peter Womersley in um, 16 slides, which is ludicrous. Um, but I was told to be quite short. Um, I can, the doors are locked and I can spend a good three hours um, just getting, beginning to start thinking about his work. Um, here's a portrait of him and um, a view of the Galaferidine rugby football stand um, with the um, E-type jag that Rowan Moore mentions in his very good article, um, um, in, in, I think it was in January in The Guardian, in The Observer. But um, the E-type came by in, in lieu of debt rather than total extravagance. I'll start with a, um, a couple of quotes. Asked which he thought was the best modern house in Britain, Sir Basil Spence, when president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, 1958-60, said, any house designed by Peter Womersley. And then Peter wrote very little. There are two articles by him, but, there are, there, but you, you piece together bits of information. He's a very private person. He wrote that, like many architects before me, I still find Sir Henry Wotton's approach to architecture, firmness, commodity and delight, to be the most comprehensive. I would, however, question his priorities. Surely, if he had lived today, a 20th century Sir Henry, with consultants to take care of the commodity and firmness, would have then been happy to give maximum attention to the delight. And I think that's what you have to think about when thinking about Peter Womersley. He's always thinking about... Um, creating beautiful things in, in, a, in a very interesting way. Um, practicalities are very, quite low on the list of priorities. His first building was designed for his brother, Farnley Hay, um, his brother, um, um, in, in, at Farnley Hay in Huddersfield. Um, and it's, he's, he's, he's worked, uh, he, he's studied, studied at the AA, uh, he then um, works and does the, the standard um, brief period at the Festival, the Festival of, um, of Britain and um, gets this commission from his brother, um, there's family money, which means that his brother, as a young man, is able to commission a house from his um, middle brother. And, um, and, and Farnley Hay puts, it, puts the practice, um, puts his, his architectural life into, um, in, in, into, into a, a gear, and he goes, goes into private practice almost immediately. He works for other firms briefly, but becomes a, a sole practitioner. And um, while this building is being um, under construction, um, he moves up to the Scottish borders. He's, he's born in England, um, Huddersfield, um, trained in London. This is in Huddersfield. And the connection between Huddersfield and the borders is the, is the um, textile industry. And the textile industry, um, and, and Frank Schofield, who's a, um, a textile um, ma managing a textile company in, in Huddersfield sees this house under construction and commissions the house in the borders from um, Peter Womersley um, and because he's moving up to Gala Shields to work in, in the borders and so that link um, takes Peter up to the borders um, and there he meets um, Bernard Klein um, who becomes one of his closest um, sort of compatriots and friends, and he becomes a great family friend, and one of the few people, apart from his family, who commissions Peter Womersley more than once to design anything. Um, he, 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 while he's busy um, designing um, the orchard for, um, for Frank Schofield, which is quite a modest house, but much altered, he designs his own house, um, the rig, um, which um, is a very simple um, Miesian, he, 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 he describes it as being a Miesian box with a central core and living space around it, uh, and, and then with a, a wing coming down with the, with the garage at the front. Um, very simple, um, very, very precise. He was very, very particular. Margaret Richards, um, architect in, in Scotland, um, tells a lovely story of arriving at um, the rig 
um, and um, to see Peter with her husband, and um, she's, she is desirous of powdering her nose, um, and, she, and she goes into the house, and, and Peter said, oh, well, just come through, and it shows her through to the bathroom. On the way, she notices a pair of slippers decorously thrown over the floor of the bedroom. Um, she goes to the loo, comes out, and the slippers have disappeared, and order is retained, because everything was so desperately precise. That you, uh, and, you, and these photographs, um, which were obviously published, um, all, all the, there are various snapshots of this room, and all the cooking utensils are in exactly the same order, always. Um, which just shows a little bit about um, Peter. Um, this next image shows a little bit more uh, of Peter. Um, he was a great devotee of the sun before it was bad for you. Um, and, but the, this is him in, in, the, in the, the balmy climate of the borders. Um, and and uh, various um, students who work for him always say that any, any chance of sunshine in the office basically moved outside. Um, but here is and, and this, this sort of... Um, idea of um, exotic living is, is, is a, a wonderful image. I think maybe one day a year he might have managed this. Um, but um, so he, 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 his practice starts very slowly and very much in domestic architecture. Um, his, the, the largest commission in his early days is the house of Bernard Klein called High Sunderland. Um, and here um, you see the plan which um, um, is sort of um, Miesian inspired a, a rectangle where you have you take out parts so you have a the living area down at the bottom with master bedroom to the left um, kitchen at the center of this fulcrum of the house ch um, service accommodation and then children at the other end um, as far away from the parents as possible but with an intercom that mrs. Klein insisted that there was an intercom system between either ends of the house um, and a paddling pool um, outs for the children, um, which was filled in after two weeks because Mrs. Klein got so traumatised by the fact that the watching her, idea of watching her children drown from the kitchen window. Um, her, her statement about it. Um, also, you get a view of the of the Kleins at home at top right. This is from a House and Gardens ad advert when House and Gardens were sort of cutting edge of design, um, and the Kleins, um, and also the, uh, an advert for Colourcraft, which was a company, part of the company that. Bernard Klein set up producing um, bespoke tweed and, and Scottish fabrics with Peter in conjunction. They worked very closely together. And um, with the tyranny of, of sort of monochrome modernism and the collection of black and white photographs that he kept, we don't get much of the colour of his interiors. And um, he, he was very interested in colour and texture. And it wasn't this sort of um, the, 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 the austerity that one associates with uh, um, certain... Um, contemporary architects. Um, moving on from High Sunderland, uh, one of his most dramatic designs was, um, was Port Murray at, at, at Maidens on the Ayrshire coast, um, built for a, a builder, and the, and the builder went bankrupt while this building was under construction, and that's where the E-type JAG came from, as part payment of fees. Here, um, he, he, he takes the um, High Sunderland um, plan form and then removes the, re the, 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 the um, sort of um, uh, controlling rectangle and then um, uh, and, and moves into three dimensions with this, this stepped arrangement and a very dramatic site. Unfortunately, this building was demolished last year, but it was in absolutely horrific condition and had partially converted into a carpet factory. Um, 
Um, and um, and, and um, anyway, there was a, it, was, it was a very sad state, but it was a fascinating design um, and, um, and, and very much a holiday house, um, single glazed, because we're hardy in Scotland, um, on a very, very exposed um, site um, on the west coast. Um, but really showing um, Peter's ability to persuade clients that he can, he can do very interesting things for them. And I think that's one of his... his um, overriding abilities was actually to enthuse clients. Once he got one, he, but they never seemed to come back. But at least, <laughs> at least he could get them. He could push them um, to, um, to 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 new heights. Um, he, he won a um, Sunday Times House of Today competition. Um, and um, Robert Harding, the architectural critic in the Sunday Times, described Peter, Peter Wilmer as the designer of the Sunday Times house of today, is a modest, near monosyllabic architect in his late 30s. He smiles more readily than he talks, and unlike most architects, listens more than he lectures. <laughs> so, um, so there's little clip clips, uh, little snippets about um, this, this interesting character. Um, coming on to, to Galafaridine, um, which is, um, I hate the, the, um, a word that begins with I and ends with C that seems to be used an awful lot at the moment, um, but the, the, um, it's a very um, important building in Iserve, um, but what I think about it is that you just have to, um, you need to visit it. It's quite sad at the moment, but it's still an operational rugby football stand. And last time I was there, I was trying to take a tour around while a game was going on. So it was, there was quite an interesting sort of uh, dichotomy of um, discussion. But the whole thing is based on, the whole design is based on the five-inch um, width of a Douglas fir board, for the, which is for the, for the um, shuttering. And everything comes from that. Um, a number of years ago, I interviewed Tom Ridley, who was the ch in charge of Ovarup in Scotland. And Ovarup worked very, very close. Tom and with Ovarup worked very closely with Peter Wormsley on this design. Um, and and uh, Tom uh, um, said, "My first impression of him, uh, Peter Wormsley, um, was of an architect who would not let barriers of a technical nature prevent him from achieving what he wanted from the design of structures." For Peter, the nature of concrete was to use it as a precise material like timber or steel, and its crafting would have to be arranged to meet his demanding geometric design. Um, his very innovative design concept called for the closest collaboration between us and much goodwill from his clients, especially surveyors, uh, contractors. Peter's powers of persuasion were always enough to overcome most, if not all, the problems. And another view. It is just the most magical building. Um, now, unfortunately, the glazing above, um, between the canopy and the, and, the, and, the, and the seating stand is filled in with advertising, and the lower level has been quite dramatically altered. But, it, but, it, but the, it, it, most of it survives, and it is, um, and it is actually much loved. And the, 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 the club at the moment are looking at ways of trying to preserve it and, and restore it. Um, but um, obviously, they have slightly different... Um, Worries, um, and, but um, it is quite a magical thing. Um, now, um, he got the Galafaridine football stand, um, and discussions with, began with Chelsea Football Club over whether this could be a, a, another scheme, um, you know, this could be a prototype for, 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 for Chelsea Football Club. Um, that, obviously, nothing came of that. Um, 
But, on, um, but at the same time, he, um, Sir Leslie Martin um, suggested him for the new sports centre at Hull University. Um, and this was ski, um, phase one of a four-phase scheme. Only, the, uh, only phase one was built. Um, but here, um, he's, he's um, yet again with Ovarup, looking at how to use architect, um, concrete in a really different, interesting ways. Uh, inspired by Kenzo Tangi's um, Kurashiki Town Hall, um, he's looking, he's, he's, uh, for, but as, as uh, Tom Ridley says, all the time, he's actually, um, it, it, the, the firmness and commodity is what the, the, the engineer has to deal with. He just wants it to look like this. And, 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 and get that, and he pushes and pushes and pushes for those refined details. So, um, and, you know, it, 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 it was one of his first sort of big disappointments that it never continued. Um, this, 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 um, this project was, no, was finished in, in, a, in a rather different way. And as with everything about Peter, um, categorically in his early career, he states that he, 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 uh, the flat roof is the only way forward. Um, the flat roof is the only possible way the um, uh, um, sloping roofs can uh, disrupt the eye, um, destroy the landscape, um, and he goes on at great length about this. And so then he designs the Kelso consulting rooms, group practice consulting rooms in Kelso with a series of, of, of pitch roofs um, looking rather like, he's almost the most Scottish he ever becomes, um, with hard walls or rendered walls and these little, little um, Ducats or dovecats of, of twin of husband and wife consulting rooms. This, the, the, the practice was designed for um, five doctors, to, uh, four of whom were couples. Did that make sense? <laughs> I, I presume, although it's the borders, you never know. Um, but uh, but um, so so it, and and it's yet another and and he has a. Um, he he believes and there's a, there's, a, there's a number of letters about getting further. Um, doctors' consulting rooms are going to happen, but these things don't quite happen. And, and it's, yet again, he kept, becomes very frustrated with um, why these things aren't developing. Um, another big break um, is for the um, truly amazing um, Nuffield transplant unit um, in, in Edinburgh, in the Western Infirmary in Edinburgh, um, which was the first purpose-built transplant unit in the world. Um, and it was this very, very specific design um, about complete... Um, where you, you segregate the, 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 the patient into a, a, a completely sterile environment, um, which has actually proved soon afterwards being completely the wrong way to treat them. Um, but the whole thing is designed so that you have no contact between patient and, um, and anybody else. And so the patient is, is in a sort of bubble which sits in the middle of this, this space. Um, the, the rooms on the left... Um, are, are glazed and hidden, from, and, and they can see out, and even all the, all the equipment is, 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 is changed from above and below and, um, and, and, and the side. Um, and here is just a cover of Helmut Puch's book um, saying that, you know, um, how important... This was a book on the whole of Scottish architecture, and, the, the, uh, and this brand-new building was put on the front cover. Um, and it just showed, showed Peter's sort of status... Um, in, in the, in, in the um, um, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and um, and uh, uh, here, um, he, it's, descri it's described as a great brutalist building, but um, Peter, uh, rather like Dennis Lasden, as, as Barnabas Cole has pointed out, do, um, didn't like the term. I don't think he would have appreciated the term. Here, he went to great lengths. All the um, shuttering of the concrete of this building was lined in fiberglass so that it was absolutely smooth. 
Um, so he's, 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 yet again, he's pushing the boundaries of what um, concrete could do, much to, obviously, Tom, Tom Ridley's chagrin as he's trying to get these things built. Um, Another building south of the border, a bit further south, um, uh, this is Valley Spring at Coombe Down in Bath, which is the third house he designs for his brother. Um, and, and here, um, he, he does a, 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 um, he's, he, he's looking at um, expressing um, the design in, in different ways and pulling out these, these brick, brick um, sections, U-sections, um, and hanging the whole um, building off these um, to create a very different um, aspect. Um, Matthew Wickens, who, who um, wrote a, um, has wrote, written extensively on this building, um, suggests that um, various um, architects such as Brivio, Filippo Brivio in, in Italy and um, I can never ever pronounce it, so I will do it badly. Um, oh, um, uh, Kirionori Kikitake at Sky House. Um, is another of, 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 the, of, of the influences for this building. Peter is very reticent about who he's influenced by. He travels the world um, throughout his career, but never goes to America. Um, he says he's influenced by Falling Water, um, he's, um, and, he's, uh, and, and Mies van der Rohe, fine. Um, but I think what he's doing is he's getting lots and lots of influences from, from publications. And, and wants to be one removed from them um, and to, to have his own view of them rather than saying, I've been to that building, this is a version of that. And I think that's part of his... his uh, but but he's, he's fascinating because he, he lets little bits of information out but never too much. Um, one of his big, uh, biggest projects, this is the proposed um, extension or rebuilding of Edinburgh College of Art. Um, and this was one in competition... Um, uh, through the suggestion of a friend, architect friend, Michael Laird. Um, and this, is what, this, this build project is one with a practice of five people, including the secretary. So on a, a, a massive scale. Um, and Tom Ridley writes, Edinburgh College Art Scheme was to have taken Peter's ideas of art in concrete to a, a most inspired um, climax. Being surrounded by artists... Um, Peter had conceived this building as an expression of concrete art, which would identify closely with the ethos of, Edinburgh, of College, Edinburgh's, Edinburgh College of Art's educational philosophy. Um, and this is a massive scheme. He worked very, very hard on it for the last ten, um, almost 10 years of his practice in Scotland, between 69 and, and 78. Um, and all he got to design was a new roof light for the, for the sculpture court um, in, 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 in the, in the, in the um, Edwardian building. And so this amazing megastructure, our view of Peter Wormsley might have been slightly different if this colossal megastructure, which would, which would have destroyed most of the grass market of Edinburgh, um, but in a very exciting way. Um, if it had happened, it would be very interesting to see, see how our attitude to him would change. Um, perhaps one of his most famous buildings um, is the studio who designed for Bernard Klein. Um, and this is the cover of Peter uh, Willis's book, New Architecture in Scotland, um, and, and, and it's all about colour. And it's, the, it's a, a, a studio for um, Bernard Klein, um, fabric um, and textile designer. His house is just up the hill to the left. Um, this amazing object, which looks to Mies, Farnsworth House, um, it's sort of, it could, could, can be said to, I, 
to be thinking about um, in, very, in the abstract um, falling water in a more vague way, but that's what's been written. Um, but very beautifully positioned, very simple design. Um, it's now um, in Ristauro and has been for quite some time. Um, but um, I'm almost there. And, and then, uh, and then the, 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 the um, Dingleton Boiler House, um, which is a purely practical building. Um, it's a, a very sculptural building that is, um, it's, it's, it, it won various awards, and it's very honest, and it's, it's brutal, and it is the most brutal of his buildings, in a sense, um, because it's, pure, it's very practical. It's a boiler house for a hospital. The hospital's now been um, redeveloped as a sort of knotty land of, of executive homes, unfortunately, um, but it sits on the edge of, of the border town of Mulrose. And then, to finish, I'll, just, I'll conclude with one little statement about, from Tom Ridley, which I think is always fascinating. This, um, he, they work so closely, and over, Peter Womers' career, um, career in concrete without Ovarup would be totally impossible. I will always remember him with delight and be grateful to have joined forces with him as a designer who stretched my imagination as an engineer into the limits of concrete technology to meet his highly innovative ideas. Working with Peter was a constant venture into uncharted territory of design practice and only his fierce conviction and dedication to his ideas maintained the strong bond between us. Peter's greatest asset was his unyielding belief in original design as the mainspring of his architectural practice. This always needed every ounce of his extraordinary strength of character, which I admired so much with such deep affection. Thank you. Okay, good evening. Now the fraud appears. <laughs> um, rather apprehensive speaking about Peter Wimmersley. I'm not an academic or historian, so apologies to Simon. And I'm not a, a devotee. And there's two people whose names I need to mention, Rebecca Wobber and Gordon Duffy have really championed Peter's work. And so they, they should be here. I don't know if they are here. Um, my hope is always to make buildings. And therefore, I, in a sense for me, um, I have an ambivalent relationship to other architects, I suppose. Uh, I need to keep my distance. Um, I can admire their work, but to fully embrace it would mean probably I would be petrified. Uh, so this is really an impression. There's a lot of slides. There's not 15, there's 150, I think. Um, and, and I suppose, in a sense, it's it, looking at Peter Wimmersley's work is trying to, to put context for how I my work myself. So I'm going to go off a, a bit of a tangent, I'm afraid, so apologies for that. Peripheral visionaries, because I don't think Peter is alone. Um, I suppose my connection to looking at Peter Wimmersley stemmed from I was commissioned to curate Scotland's contribution to Scotland and Venice in 2014. Scotland's contribution to, to Venice is minimal, I have to say. <laughs> um, still, we were there, we were there. So we made six newspapers. What, what I did was I carved Scotland up into four, four districts. And the theme, if you recall, of 2014 was Rem Koolhaas absorbing modernity, 1914 to 2014. And what we did was we looked at Scottish architecture from the 50s, 60s and 70s in those four districts. And the borders in Edinburgh was one of them. And Peter Wimmersley's work cropped up. And we looked at that. So these newspapers are there. But out of that has come a book, 
which is just hot off the press, done by a series of students at RGU in Aberdeen. So something came of it. But really, the, the theme of the, um, the curation, if you like, was to go out and seek out the marginal, those on the periphery. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about ways of seeing. Peripheral vision, averted vision, um, is, about, is really about how you look at the world, I think. And this analogy that I enjoy is the fact the blue area in your eyeball is about looking at something directly. And that it normally involves detail and colour. And it seems to me that architecture is concerned with the centre, celebrity and image. And that the peripheral vision, which is rods, is really about black and white, and it's about sensitivity to movement. And I think it would do us well to start to, to look away slightly from the centre. So astronomers use this to look at uh, far-flung stars. It's called averted vision. You look slightly to the left and you see movement. And I think by looking at the edge, we can maybe learn something for the centre. That's my theme, anyway. So in praise of the peripheral, Utzon talks about this. He talks about how, as a boy, his father taught him the ways of the hunter. I wrote that. Um, to keep to the margins, to the edges of the forest, neither out in the open nor deep in the forest. There's, it's a very strategic position to take. And I commend it. And as I said, he's not alone. And it's, I think Finn, it's fascinating that there, this post-war period is starting to throw up a lot of artists and architects who are incredibly interesting. You just need to think of John McLaughlin, who's now long dead, but currently having a resurgence in America. Think of Jan van Schoenhoven, Dutch artist, who's considered by many to be one of the foremost Dutch modernist uh, artists, worked full-time as a postman, uh, art in the evenings. If you think of on architectural terms, Julian Lampins. And this was part of the theme that was coming out of that, that Biennale, was there were so many of these architects and artists. Um, Swiss, Neuenschwander. Closer to home, someone like Robin Walker, who's, this is uh, Bother Bowie. Um, this work, if you think of the themes of Robin Walker's work, it's about country and town. His ability to, the weekends spent in this cottage with the likes of Seamus Heaney. There was a broad cultural uh, discussion going on here. And yet his work is as modern as it comes uh, in, in the city. UCD restaurant, this Miesian, incredibly courageous work. And the influence of Breuer. And I think Breuer is a theme I think I'll come back to. However, getting, getting closer to home, Scotland. Scotland's got two coasts. I'll be very quick. West Coast, East Coast. <laughs> Simple as that. The West Coast is centred on Gillespie, Kitten, Coya, Corbusian work. It's primarily about plan and section. Um, I think that's got to do with the coastline. It's layered. It's romantic. It's, it's got depth. East Coast, North Sea, not a lot to it. A lot, nice plans, not a lot in section. More abstract. And the work of, I'm from the East Coast, so the work of people like Morris and Steedman, I mean, this house on the left, Avisfield, was done by Morris and Steedman while they were in their final year at college. It's just a beautiful building. They studied in Pennsylvania, and they were obviously very influenced by Breuer. This is their 
university building of the early 70s, and that's Bob Steedman's own house. So these are fantastic architects, I think. And then coming much closer to home, Stuart Renton, who was my boss, basically, uh, previous design director at Reakin Hall. This is his own, his own house and the new club, um, 66. Now, I was an architecture student in the late 1970s at Edinburgh College of Art. And the school was very closely connected to Edinburgh practices. And I think that was true virtually of all the schools. Um, design tutors were invariably practicing architects and full-time academics were interested in history, uh, structures, environmental. But when I arrived at Reakin Hall, the founding partners were retiring. And I think also retiring was a way of, a way of practicing. I think we were seeing the end of a way of, of practice. It was a very comfortable time, and I think in a very creative period of, of architecture in Scotland. And I'm trying to make a connection. I didn't know Peter Wimmersley, so I'm trying to make a connection with Stuart Renton. Stuart Renton had a, he had a cool Scandinavian house. He drove a convertible German car. He ate Danish food, Danish furniture, um, skiing holidays in Zermatt every year. There was, a, there was a very comfortable life going on there. Um, things like... They used to go to Leadlanet House, Black Tie, which is on the outskirts of Ken Ross. Um, John Calder, the publisher, who formed the, I've got it here, the Partisan Coffee House, a radical new left venue in Soho, published Chekhov, Tolstoy, Zola. It was Black Tie, rhododendrons, gravel driveways. It was a very comfortable period, and this was the period that, that Wimmersley's work was coming out of. It's all gone now, I'm afraid. German cars gone, no cool houses. So on to Peter Wimmersley, and I hope you enjoy my graphics because I had to struggle to do this. But this is an image with eight of his works, key works. You've got Selkirk, Gala, Melrose, and just off to the right is Kelso, and each dot is a major work. The red circle is five miles in diameter. This is the, the locality that we're talking about. Basically, all these works are within a stone throw of one another. The arrow is Edinburgh, which is about 25 miles away. Kelso is about nine miles away. So this is the context that we're dealing with. Um, it's very local, and it's very... And in, in that sense, the work becomes, I think, even more extraordinary. This is the borders. The borders, I think, are really is relevant to it's, it's important to understand that the borders are marginal as well. When you travel north, you skip the borders out. You get a train from London to Edinburgh or Glasgow. Therefore, it's a very, very good place to lose yourself. And I think that's basically what Peter Wimmersley was doing. He was losing himself in a community where he could function. So. First, I just want to go through some contemporary photographs of these works. This is High Sunderland, just outside Selkirk. Um, that's it ringed, sitting within a, what is now a mature forest. In its time, immensely graphic building. Um, I don't see Mies, I see a case, case house. But I also think this has absolutely got to do with textiles. About about the warp and the weft 
of these different rhythms that come through the structural rhythm which runs through the house, and then the fenestration takes up different patterns, different colours. I think it's an absolute um, relationship with this and Bernard Klein's work. So these are contemporary photographs. And there is a certain sadness about the building, I have to say. A certain unloved quality about it. When you consider, um, it's actually within a stone, you know, it's very easily be sort of commutable with Edinburgh that this building really isn't more, more loved. Um, but we'll come back to that in a second. The next building I'd, we, haven't, we haven't talked about, which I, for me anyway, is probably the most relevant building. Um, this was social housing in Galashields, 1961. The other thing, as well as being very local, everything is happening within about 10 years. You know, from, from the first building to the last building, you're only 10 to 15 years, so they're happening very quickly. The other thing that's remarkable them is that there's no real repetition beyond the houses in terms of aesthetic or, or how the, the idea is derived. But I think if you look at this, this housing circled here in Gala Shields, that's, to me, that's a very contemporary figure ground um, pattern. I think we see that a lot now, but this is in 61. And it's the one set of buildings which I think really do, it does really try to, to use that word contextualise, to sit within the scale of the streetscape. And there is a mix of materials which Miles Glendinning calls modernising traditionalists. That's how Miles Glendinning phrased them. This use of random rubble, render traditional materials, but to use them in a contemporary way. So I'll just run through these very quickly. Gables move forward into the street. They're clad in rubble. The base is rubble. What I find interesting as you go through these and then the main facades are set back, series of gardens. The gable is strangely scaleless. There's three stories, but you get this kind of abstract grid on the gables, but then it turns into horizontal on the long elevations with each layer expressed differently from the base, the, the um, you can see it more clearer there, the gridding. The base course, then the, the first floor with the balcony, and then the second floor, they come out to take the balcony. So each, each layer is slightly different. So really playing with facades there. As I said, this is council housing. So you get this very, and you get these slight flourish on the stair. And then through to the, the courtyard at the back. I think they're very livable. Um, huge amount of lessons, I think, there for, for these border towns, which are expanding. Simon mentioned rugby clubs, and this is Melrose Sevens happening. All of these villages, towns, have their, have their stand. So immediately you almost, looking at the date, 61, and then go to, sorry, 63, two years later, you get Galaferidine. So there isn't a sequence that gradually moves towards um, kind of formal. They seem to happen immediately after each other. So that's the context of the, of the stand. These are the official photographs which you've seen before. Um, there's a section. It's just an, an amazing piece of structure. Um, this folded, folded concrete. And that roof is a, a massive beam spanning on the four columns. 
and then the little upturned ticket, ticket offices as you come in. It's very graphic. And the glass is frameless, and then it turns along to stop that breeze coming in. The reality today <laughs> um, looks slightly sad. This is, a, this is one of my fellow director's photographs. Jim, he likes to photograph things in a kind of grim way. His name is Jim Grimley, but anyway. <laughs> but it's still there. And that's my photograph. When the sun comes out, suddenly that prismatic, I would call this brilliant building, and I mean it on two senses. It is brilliant, but it's also brilliantly cut, like, like a prism, uh, the way it's folded. But the, the bits that I really enjoy, uh, you can see how the glass has been filled in, and it's used. It's when these, these tapers come down to meet a door, and suddenly the, the, the brick which is in filling and the, the, sh the chamfer on the concrete leads you into these doors. I think there's some just lovely, lovely moments. Some poor patching going on. But... So in the right light, it's, it still has the power to, to amaze, really. If you consider the scale of the community and the scale of the club that this is for, the, the courage of doing this is amazing. So I'll just run through these. And again, that same stair, that cantilevered stair, from the housing up onto the stand, and the way that that just opens up to the pitch. And the, the floodlight detail is caught on the roof and then out on the pitch. The Nuffield Transplantation Surgery Unit is, is one that I, I can't fathom this building, how you suddenly go in the same year from Glasgow, from the Galaferidine to, to this building. As Simon said, it was a, it's a very um, clinical plan from the non-sterile and the sterile areas. So I think, you know, there was a, a really tough brief to crack there. Um, but that somehow didn't stop him um, exploring form in a way that I can't place the, this architecture at all. There's something... Breuer, there's something, Paul Rudolph, there's something about it which is, which is coming from a different direction. Simon did mention publications, and I do know that in Edinburgh, around about that period, there was one shop, Aitken Dots, which sold architectural books. And when I say architectural books, I really mean book. When the book came in, they had a travelling salesman who brought them around the offices. So if a Breuer book came in, with the tracing paper or the pencils would be a copy of the Breuer book. And he would sell one to Alan Reich, Basil Spence, Robert Matthew, in, as they went round. There, was, there wasn't an AA bookshop or an RIBA bookshop. And so you do wonder where these influences are coming from because I do think there's a, there's a lot of Jap Japan in these buildings. I mean, staggering images at the time. Just very unusual. And then, of course, almost theatrical. This is a, this is a heart transplant. There's a kind of theatre about this. And th that was a photograph, which is a really critical photograph to me, which I've pinched out of the book, is that originally it was a terracotta-tinted precast concrete units. There was a through-and-through -through terracotta tint to the building, which was very beautiful. 
Each panel was slightly different. Um, but it was beginning to stain. Um, NHS, in their wisdom, painted the building. So that's why I show it in black and white. <laughs> but in, in reality, it's been painted sandstone colour, because Edinburgh is, of course, made of sandstone, so it's a yellow thing now. And it's lost. It's like, it's like someone putting on too much makeup. The, the, the quality of the skin, that translucency of the concrete is gone, and it's an opaque... And it's, it's ruined for me. I'll need to speed up. And coming on to the last ones. This is the group practice two years later. And we revert to, on the face of it, something which looks like a Scottish clachan or something. Rendered. It's got the upstand gables, slated roofs. But for me, this is it today. And the original building is absorbed by big extensions. And that was the plan originally, caretaker's flat. A caretaker's flat for a tiny building like this. I was just a, I think that was care in the community before care in the community was. But there's almost a metabolist feel, I think, to the plan, which, which comes across in other, other buildings. There's something very Japanese going on here for me. And that, this is one of our students up in RGU's made, made these models for this book. Um, that's what it was like. Um, one thing I did wanted to stress as well is tremendous particular care given to the landscape, to containing walls that connected the building back to a bigger site on all the buildings. But today, difficult to, to identify which bits are original, which bits are fake. Um, that's the caretaker's flat. That's all new. So it's a bit sad. But... There are moments in it where you can still see pieces of the original. Uh, Roxburgh County Buildings, Newton St Boswells. Again, I'll go very quickly through this. Starts off immensely heroic. This is a tiny community when this thing lands on your doorstep, top of a hill. It is just so bold. Um, shades of butter here, I think. But, but you know, this, this absolute formality and, and strength and again, these very theatrical images. Today, an extension. Obviously, that that entrance worried someone, so they built enormous, um, friendly, um, <laughs> glazed and metal, cheap thing on the side of it. But as you move around the outside, you can still see the uncompromising quality of the original. I want to. Finish this quickly. Bernard Klein Studio. Mm -hmm. There was the house. There's the studio. Shift to colour. Bernard Klein was a was a revolutionary colourist. I think it's fair to say. He was a painter, Serbian. Uh, this is his his fabrics. Yves Saint Laurent, Dior, Chanel. All of these all of these fashion houses. All the old Bond Street people came to the studio and the borders to amazing uh, colourways. Again, this is a model by one of our students. And that's what it was like in its heyday, I suppose. This is it today. This is the car park. Two levels. Entrance level, reception, office. <coughs> Public came at, uh, the client would arrive at the lower level. Bernard Klein's studio on the upper level. 
access from the house. Clients obviously taken up to the studio once they were signed the deal. But it, I mean, I don't necessarily see any Frank Lord writing that. I do see Breuer, though. Um, and I do see this weaving, the weaving of structure and facade, the two very strong structural walls on the outside and this clear, cl clear glazing through the centre. But it just needs the sun to come out and the power begins to show again. Immensely strong plinth as well, which I've never... Immensely deep. So there's a huge strength to the project. So that's the ground floor today, as it was, from the bridge. So this would be how Bernard Klein arrived at the studio. But I have to say, time has made the concrete immensely beautiful. It's taken on this, it's almost, it almost feels like timber. That's very beautiful. Simon's already spoken about the, the boiler house, which is a very, like the Nuffield, a very pragmatic plan, but somehow he manages to, to manipulate that into a very sculptural object. There are plans to convert this into housing at the moment by Gordon Duffy. Whether that would happen, I'm not sure. Okay, so I wanted just to finish on this last last piece, which was really just one of the articles I wrote was about this word ruin lust, um, and it's a psychopathological condition of being drawn to that which we most fear, and we actually seek out ruins. I think as a culture, um, we don't stumble across them; we actually actively seek seek them out. Um, and I think there is something incredibly poignant, I think, about... We talked about the West Coast and the East Coast. This is Gillespie, Kidd and Coya's seminary building. Rumorously, Bernard Klein Studio. Considered probably to be the two best buildings, modern buildings in Scotland. Yeah. It somehow suggests where, where those buildings sit within the culture of... Scotland, if indeed there is a, a culture in Scotland or even an architectural culture. And I think that um, is a sad reflection, I think, um, considering that we do have a Scottish architectural policy and an actual policy unit, and yet we can allow both of these buildings to, to fall into this kind of state. This building is become, effectively going to become an art installation, and the future's in doubt for this one. So I, th I think it's, it, for me, it's, it's really about reflecting on, on the relationship of, of contemporary architecture of a certain period to, the, to today's culture and where, the, where that actually sits. And it seems to me that we're, both of these buildings get a lot of coverage now. We're actually, as a culture, much more comfortable with them as a, as a, as a ruin than we were when they were a functioning building. They've become somehow absorbed now into Scottish, Scottish life, which is very sad. So I was just going to finish by saying, on a good note, on that photograph, was that what I take from, from Wimmersley is, is the courage of the work, basically. The clarity of the idea and the relationship to materials. And what I find stunning about them is the indiv individuality of each, each project. 
And I think we, we, if we look at some of the Swiss architects of today, we can see that almost happening. Each, each project is the opportunity to, to, to look at a different exploration. Um, so that's incredibly interesting. And the other thing I, which I take from it is that he operated within a tiny area so that it is possible to do work regardless of where you are, because um, he shows it. That's me. invite people to come up with questions, but I think perhaps Simon, would you like to start? Simon Henley. I had the good fortune, I'm asking myself, like Neil, who um, was asked to speak about Pisa last autumn up in Edinburgh. And at the time, I hadn't seen any of his buildings. And um, I was there because I am writing a book about brutalism. And, and I'm struck both by, by what both Simon and Neil said this evening, and, and particularly about things like where the inspiration comes from, uh, reference to Breuer. And I think one of the things which is particularly fascinating about his circumstances, really, especially in an age where the world has got very small and we're focused on living and practicing in cities, was this idea of him being quite literally geographically at the periphery. And it triggers a whole series of, of things. I mean, there's a, I, I too agree with this connection with Breuer. I mean, I find it fascinating, because if you look at, as many of you probably know, Breuer's domestic work is all in timber, predominantly, certainly the structure, possibly a little bit of steel. But it's a fine architecture. And then his architecture of... Um, Institutions and commercial buildings is a heavy uh, concrete architecture. And that seems quite sort of hard to reconcile in almost anybody else's work apart from Breuer's. These two opposite sides of the Atlantic exploring very similar things. And had, as Simon said, had he built the Edinburgh School of Art, then actually this kind of huge concrete megastructure would be associated with Wormersley. And... Um, and so this kind of idea of what concrete is becomes interesting because uh, Adrian Forty writes about the associations that certain parts of the world have with concrete and broadly speaking, let's say the European association with concrete is that it's stone. Whereas the Japanese uh, association with concrete is that it's timber. So this switching between these two tectonics, as soon as you make a connection with timber, becomes much more plausible but also this attention to detail and craft and so on. Um, Peter was, I suspect, in a way, quite innocent in a way in terms of his interests and quite, uh, you can see these associations with Japanese architecture, you can see these associations with American architecture, with Breuer. He talks about the head and the heart and he associates Mies with the head and Frank Wright with the heart. What I find quite striking about the Bernard Klein studio is that it seems to be the closest uh, combination of, of Mies uh, and Wright, in as much as it seems to be somehow something a bit like the Farnsworth House wrought in concrete, but with the situation of uh, Franklin Wright's falling water. And so in some respects, Bernard Klein, the, the Klein studio is, does seem the apotheosis of his work. Um, 
So I, I, you know, he, I think probably it's a, yeah, he's a very important architect to reflect upon at this point because of his kind of freedom to associate outside of perhaps his uh, British context, outside of his Northern European context, um, and to, to see it from a much wider perspective. He also he wrote, he, he, he gave a talk in January, this is my last point, but he made a, he, he gave a, he was asked, invited to talk uh, in 1969 in January, and the transcript of what he wrote was published in May in the RBA Journal. And it, for those who are, you know, who are interested to read more, I would strongly recommend it because it's really spoken from the heart. It's very clear, it's quite biographical. He's quite open about his interests, about the architects, the Japanese architects, and so on. I don't think he mentions Breyer. He talks about the head and the heart. He talks about Mies and, uh, and Frank Wright. But he also talks very much about archaeology, uh, archaeological sites, Angkor Wat uh, in, in Cambodia, and, and other places like that, places in the, in the Middle East and Far East, which, whilst there was discussion about it, there weren't, there might have been historians writing about it, some of the Team 10 were talking about sort of civilization patterns and so on. But actually, he was very early on talking about the very things that most modern architects weren't certainly expressing an open interest in. I thoroughly agree with Simon. I think um, one of the things about, uh, that um, Neil brought out was the fact that he's designing all these things not in a good old-fashioned Pevsnerian um, modernism develops in a, in, a, in a linear fashion, but he's actually, he, he's taking all these different ideas all the time. And yes, the houses are, have, a, have a, um, a, a similarity and he's developing, but suddenly when he gets into concrete, it, it just becomes so, um, so exciting and so different. And I think um, where, that's where you, you begin to feel that he's, he, and it, that's when he become, becomes in the late 60s very frustrated because he's not getting um, the bigger commissions. He's, it, all the time he's feeling that he's, he's pushing the boundaries but not getting the realization and becomes quite despondent. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think you don't realize how rural um, rural is in where he's living because Edinburgh is um, dramatically smaller than this this place we're in today. Um, um, Gala Shields was a um, thriving um, but small border town. Uh, Melrose is a small town on the outskirts of Gala Shields, and he's not even there. He's in a tiny village on the outskirts of Melrose. Um, but from 1968, he opens an office in Hong Kong. And so on his notepaper, it says Gatton Side and Hong Kong. <laughs> but never London. Uh, never Edinburgh, you know, not New York, and so it's, it's fascinating. This, the, but, but he, I think he he, he really he really um, sort of relates to the security of the textile industry. That he was his father was in the textile industry. He has a, the close friends of the clients and various other people in the, in a very tight community, and it gives him the power to be slightly odd odd one out doing these interesting design in a very close. Com com and design-led community, um, small community, but he he's has that opportunity to, um, and he never wants to move. He does is not clubbable. All contemporary architects speak very fondly of him, but he's never he's never part of. He's not part of committees. He's not going to. He's not giving public lectures. He's not doing that. And also on the the east-west split in Scotland is very very strong, as as Neil um, pointed out, and um, but Jack Coyer is one of his nominees for his, for his associateship at the Royal Scottish Academy.
So he gets somebody from the, the West to nominate him, so, which is quite racy. <laughs> Hello? Yep. I mean, I was, uh, I was going to add to that. I absolutely agree with you, Simon. I think there's something very interesting about the um, shift in material between private and public. And that's where I was starting to see parallels with Robin Walker's work, where you get this, this kind of private world, which is render and timber, and, and at the same time he's working with Scott Talon Walker in Miesian steel concrete. There's just this amazing shift one doesn't preclude the other one. So, so I think that's really interesting. I was, I, I was just going to add that, uh, although I have been with Reagan Hall my whole, my whole life, I think, uh, um, Wimersley's name wasn't mentioned once. And I think that's, that is incredibly interesting, I think, um, that Gillespie and Coy obviously were, uh, in the West, and there was great rivalry between the East and the West. Busy Metzstein used to accuse Alan Reich of his churches being converted gymnasia because they were <laughs> Scandinavian. They probably so, didn't leak. Uh, probably, <laughs> maybe not. But and where where Rumersley sat within the, that kind of cartels of East and West was he didn't. He wasn't really part of that world, and all the better for it, I think. Um, I think this is, I can say this south of the border, but I don't think there's anything intrinsically Scottish about Peter Womers's work whatsoever. He's an international architect. Um, and I think that, and he would see himself as that. Um, and which is, um, is quite interesting because the whole idea of nationalism is quite potent north of the border at the moment. Something which draws across from the private and the public is that once you start looking back at them, they are all very, very sculptural and sort of very much of that period of abstract sculptures. And at first sight, if you just look at, at the photographs, you think that this is someone who's as a sort of arty architect doing this sculptural stuff. And then you realise that all of these are coming out of very rigorous <coughs> true functionalism. It's not stylistic, not a style of functionalism, but actually the rigour of the plan and then working through. Um, and that he's producing a sculpture out of this very, very rigorous kind of functionalism. And yet at the same, which is very modern, both in the, the appearance, the sculpture appearance and in this functionalism. And yet at the same time, and one of the ironies is, right the way across the materials, but perhaps even more, most in the concrete, there's a sense in which they're very handmade and hand-touched. And the fact that this concrete is board-marked um, board and that sometimes he's, he's putting fiberglass in to, to actually, so that you're going to feel it in a different way. So that there's something which is almost arts and crafts behind it as well which perhaps fits in with coming from textiles and, and this sort of craftsmanship and, and very much, it's touchy-feely. At the same time, it's this extraordinarily courageous, brave, we won't call it brutalist, but... Um, I, I, interestingly, there's no evidence um, that's surviving of Peter sketching. Um, it's quite interesting. There's, there's very, very few. Um, he, he loves graph paper, and he, he, he sets up different graphs and grids for each design, and there's quite long discussions about that. And although he edited his um, um, drawings collection and his um, photographic collection dramatically before he died, 
and the, the, his, his personal collection is now in the Royal Scottish Academy in Edinburgh. Um, he, he got rid of all the office drawings um, and he kept published photographs of the buildings. And he was very, very particular about his legacy. But there's, there's no evidence of any um, sketches or, or, or drawing, you know, uh, freehand drawings of almost anything, which is quite fascinating, I think, in the, in, um, in the, in the, in the art world. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that almost makes it very contemporary because yes. Olgiati would, Valerio Olgiati would claim the same. You know, there's, there's no drawings. Mm-hmm. Each scheme is happening. Well, one of the things I was going to say, though, was that when I was alluding to the end of an era, when you were talking about the, the way concrete was made. Um, the, and anecdotally, if, if you think the Edinburgh architects around about that period, you know, it was a different, it was, it was a different world. They all met for afternoon tea in a cafe designed by Basil Spence. All the partners would stop work at three. We'd all meet for coffee. So that's Robert Matthew, Basil Spence, Alan Reich, all of them that would all meet there. Um, Whittock and Reed, which were the joiner makers just down the road, they would phone them up and tell them when they had a decent piece of oak. Not for any specific project, just for their next project. There was a, it was a very different world, so that when people were making something, you really were talking about builders. They weren't contractors, they were builders. And I think the Borders was really well known for its, the quality of its construction. So it doesn't surprise me at all. What I remember of Peter Wotemansley was um, in that article he was talking about going on a skiing holiday and doing the sketches for the uh, hospital, and those were freehand sketches, and I remember seeing them. They're published. More interesting that he got rid of them, that he wanted yes, to yes, give yes, a... It's the, I think it's the fact that nothing, there's not, a, not a scrap survives. Which is, um, but he, and he, speaks, he he talks lovingly of, of, of graph paper, but it's fascinating that because yeah, it was Kitzbull, wasn't it? In fact, where he's, he's busy. Uh, evening, Neil. I did work for you at some point, Ken Taylor. <laughs> um, uh, I just wanted to know what the update was with the Klein Studio and what's happening. How is the house and the studio uh, operating? Well, um, I can give you a, a brief. Um, at the moment, um, Shelley Klein, who's the youngest daughter of Bernard Klein, um, is living in, in High Sunderland. Um, but the future, um, she can't really afford to maintain it and live there in a rather large house on a um, sort of craftsperson's um, income. And her, her brother and sister aren't particularly interested in living there. And so there's discussions about trying to set up some sort of trust to look after the building, but it's quite difficult because um, it's a very beautiful house in a very beautiful location that is monetarily worth quite a lot of money. Um, there's no social need, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to be quite an interest. It's, it's a difficult, there's discussions at the moment, under, undergoing at the moment, underway at the moment. Um, as to the um, studio, that was, um, Gordon Duffy has done a very um, elegant design um, turning it into um, a, basically a holiday house. Um, and the, the scheme stalled um, in the crunch and hasn't reawoken, although um, for a while the building was uh, very unloved. Um, and it's, um, and um, Neil's very beautiful photographs show it in, at, a, at, a, at a particularly unloved state. Um, it's a little bit looking... <laughs> 
um, and but supposedly the the the, the scheme is about to um, um, come to life again. Um, what's rather sad is that um, Bernard Klein sold the studio to the um, council, and the um, Borders Council used it for a number of years, um, and then um, and then there was some, um, they wanted to sell it, and they refused to sell it back to Bernard Klein. And so that was, and, and the family, and so the family have great. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a terrible feeling of, of, of antipathy between the, the house and the studio now, which is a great shame. Um, but I'm hoping that something will be resolved um, with the studio. The, the house is going to be more problematic because it's very, very. I think Peter, you know, it is the best preserved of Peter Wemyss's houses because they're very fragile, in the sense that they're, it, has, it has all its original furniture and the art and everything. And Peter uh, and Bernard discussed absolutely everything right down to the crockery and the cutlery and to the nth degree. Um, and all the other houses have, have been altered, that survive have been altered and changed, understandably, as client people seem to want to change the houses they live in for some reason. Um, but um, so I, I think it, it, it's very precious, but I don't think that the, um, for example, the National Trust for Scotland I've always had in my idea, I mean, in my head, it would be perfect for them to take it on, because it's an amazing 20th century building that should be part of the national collection. Um, but the National Trust for Scotland is in a period of change, I think, is the technical term, um, and there's no way that they could even countenance, and there's no money to come with it, um, and, and so it's a, it is a difficult one. So that's so it's not a terribly happy prospect at the moment but we're, we're, we're trying. Galafaridine and the studio are both grade one, or A-listed in Scotland, and, um, and, the, uh, and the house, you know, so they're, they're all, all, all A-listed. So. Um, but that offers protection from alteration rather than necessarily vast quantities of money. Uh, working for Historic Environment Scotland rather than the Royal Commission, that's all I can say. <laughs> Could you clarify the relationship between Wormersley and, and Bernard Klein a little? I, I... I may have missed something, but you said that they were actually partners in business. Is, is that right? Yes, they, 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 um, Bernard Klein set up a, a, a subsidiary company called Colorcraft from his own um, design studio and, and mill. Um, and, so they, and I don't know how long it lasted, for about some 10 years, I think, they, were, they worked together. Um, but they, but, but um, they were close friends and throughout their life. And, and basically... Um, Peter was known as Uncle Peter to Bernard Klein's children. So it's, it's that sort of intimate relationship. And, and he's one of the few people, apart from, his, from Peter's brother, um, he was the only client who came back. I thought one of the other themes that came out that was quite interesting is this background of textiles. Both the, I like the way in which you explained how in this social housing, the, the idea of textile, in a way, the... the, um, the obsession with graph paper mm. and goes with this idea of something which has a warp and a weft to it as well. But also what came out of that is we see these rather mesian buildings which are then very textured, um, much more the kind of what you were describing as the West Coast layered approach, whilst at the same time having this rather hard-edged, rational East Coast. Um, the degree to which on top of that he's then using textile in a house like th that for Klein or in the studio for Klein. How does he see the relationship between the soft 
and the, the hard rigid, because there was this layering of different materials that seemed to me to be quite strong and quite mm. a significant aspect of his work. I, mean, it, I suppose it, it begs the question, what was the influence of Klein on Wimmersley? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because Klein was dramatic, uh, you know, a wonderful designer. I mean, his fabrics and, uh, were just stunning. Um, so, um, I mean, the textures and the, the, the mix of fibres through them are, are amazing when you look at I was looking at I was in the mm -hmm. Scottish Museum yesterday looking at them. There's some in Chambers Street. Um, so what, what was the conversation that was going the other way between mm. Klein and Wimmersley? Would Wimmersley have been the architect he was without Klein? I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking that there's those things released there that I think were, must have been down to Klein, I think. I, th I think you're right. I think the um, if you look at Farnley Hay, which is the house he designed in Huddersfield, which is before he meets Klein, is fascinating, but it's quite hard textured. Um, and there's a mixture of slate and stone and formica and all sorts of things, very Festival of Britain um, sort of palette of materials, which is really interesting. Um, whereas, um, and not that much colour, whereas the post-Klein, meeting in Klein, it, the colour does expand. And Peter detests sofas um, with a vengeance. Cushion, a cushion against a wall is allowable. Uh, and, and a nice flat sort of, um, you know, a, a, a divan is, is acceptable. And you're allowed one chair, um, if you're lucky. Um, but, um, but, it's, it, but, there, no, but there is, but everything is textured. In the, in the photographs of the rig, his own house, um, which is tiny, um, it's all about the, the, the difference between slate and wood and fabric and different fabrics and different textures on the fabrics and and and, and sheepskin and this sort of thing and it's it's all in, in a very very tight palette but he's very very uh, it's fascinating how it changes and of course peter had this um textile background um and his brother um, founded arcana of bath the furniture makers and so it's quite interesting there's another element of that design thing going on <coughs> Um, but no, I think it, it is. It, it's and it's one of those stories because the Klein family will tell you categorically that they brought Peter Wormsley to Scotland, which isn't true. But it's um, but it's that one, one of those things that is the, their story, and and the Kleins did go and visit Farnley Hay with Peter Schofield, who was the chap who commissioned an earlier, much more smaller house, which had been radically altered. But it's very difficult to um, get um, any detail, but. I was lucky enough to have a number of conversations with Bernard Klein, who was amazingly mesmeric speaker, and you just listened, and you know, it just, um, and you asked him a question, and he went off on a great tangent, um, and you never could get much information, but you got an awful lot of passion and, and theory, um, but never, and, um, but not never sort of well that happened then. That wasn't interesting. It was more of the concept. I think the other thing which struck me going through it was partly what a different world you were, one was living in in terms of design and making. This is making this was coming through a lot. But also just the courage of these clients, right, left and centre. Um, and particularly, as you were pointing out, you know, this is what, what people in London might look down their nose and say, this is very parochial, provincial, tiny places out in the middle of almost nowhere in the, in the borders, which one usually thinks of as, as a fairly conservative kind of place. And these, particularly with the, with the stadium and that, these are clients who are showing, clients without enormous sums of money, 
showing incredible courage. How did they... How did, what was his relationship that he managed to do that? Well, I think, I think, I think Tom Ridley um, alludes to it, that there are various problems and issues. Once the, you know, um, but the fact that he gets, the, he gets Ove Arup involved um, by ringing um, from Gattenside, ringing the London headquarters for Ove Arup and saying it's Wilmersley here, and they think it's some chap in Sheffield who's, who's doing quite a lot of big concrete buildings, and so gets put through to the, the, sort of the, the head of the Edinburgh office before they realise it's this little chap in, in the borders. Um, and, 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 and Peter does relate that story. Um, and, and, but he's just, he has this um, ability to get things, to persuade um, a persuade because um, Ovarup was very much against the design of of um, the, for, uh, the rugby football stand because he felt it couldn't be built, um, and uh, and so there was a great there was there was great sort of difficult um, um, moments in the office described in great detail by Tom Ridley, um, but I only, I only 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 gave you a little snippets. But it, it so I think you know, he, but it is this ability that Peter Wormsley had to persuade and cajole and suggest. And I think he was very inspirational. I think that's the thing, that he did manage to get um, people excited and, 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 and to do something different. You know, the, um, the, the transplant unit is amazing for that. I think I'd like to just counter this idea that he was neglected in his lifetime. Uh, he got an enormous amount of publicity for a practice so small. And he was a star. Uh, there was a film of Farnley Hay that was shown internationally. Was it shown at the Venice Biennale? Uh, it can't have been an architecture one. It was shown somewhere like that. Um, High Sunderland was written up in Country Life by Mark Girouard with a full-length article. And then this RIBA talk that's been referred to was a very prominent series. And I can't remember what the series was called. It was Architects on Themselves, basically. And interestingly, if my memory is right, out of the eight or so talks that were done in that series, I think at least half the architects are now largely forgotten. So he's not alone in that. But it shows you what a short attention span we seem to have today. And we can only hold four or five names at a time. Uh, and his remains to be one of them, may I say, because there isn't a book yet. <laughs> I'm Tony Pratton. I'm trustee of uh, Dokomomo. In fact, the only living trustee of Dokomomo. <laughs> Derek Sugden, my dear friend, abandoned me by dying, which I guess he didn't mean to. What I'd like to say is that um, Dokomomo do very wide-ranging work, an absolute shoestring. And it's the work of two people who make it happen. So it's not just these lectures here and in Cowcross Street. It's visits to buildings and other work to maintain our consciousness of the modern movement here in the UK. This is important for the younger generation because in Switzerland or Austria or Denmark or other countries in Europe, um, there would be an awareness of the history of modernism in the mind of students and their work would somehow rest on that knowledge. In the UK, it's always fleeting and it's always lost. So, Dokomomo's work is not just to have us reminisce about architects who we admired perhaps in my generation when we were students, but actually to extend that knowledge to younger generations. 
So with that thought in mind, what I'd like to say is that we should really ask you to join. <laughs> it's a serious question, and it's only 30 pounds. As I understand it, there's a deduction for students, probably 25 pounds, but um, we'll find that out. Dokomomo badly needs a, a temporary administrative assistant. With more membership, we can get that. Um, with donations, we could get that. And we could make this effort expand into this younger generation and future generations. So if you want to join, you can join online. It's, um, I can't read it. You can find it. It's online. Um, you can uh, join online. And with that, you get the list of the uh, lectures, uh, which is also online. So please do, please do this. I really ask you sincerely if you would do this and ask your friends if they would also do this. And then perhaps there will be a consciousness of modernism in the work of masters who are not forgotten. In fact, they're general practitioners of courage, just like you will be. And they're worth remembering and they are the people who we rely on for our work. So. Again, I ask you if you would join. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.